So we're in lesson 73 of the book of Matthew. We're nearing the conclusion of our study on it. And we've come to what's called the Lord's Supper in chapter 26. So we're going to begin with verse 17. It says, On the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Yeshua and ask, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? And so remember from our last week's study that this is kind of an ambiguous term, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It could mean the 14th or the 15th of the month, and in this case it would have to mean the 14th because they haven't had Passover yet. So remember as well we talked about how uh, briefly about as to whether or not Yeshua's last meal was a Seder, Passover Seder, or not. And I, I just want to look at three main positions on whether or not Yeshua had a Seder that night and just discuss them briefly. The first group are those who want to look at John's gospel and throw out the others and say that the Last Supper wasn't a Seder at all. He couldn't have had a Seder a day early. And they say, first of all, if we look at the text of the Bible, we don't even have any mention of meat. So how could it be a Seder? And that could be a good argument, but the fact is that the Gospels, the fact that the Gospels don't mention the lamb at a Seder is not, doesn't make it not necessarily a Seder. It just means that it was expected that you were going to have a lamb. It, wasn't even, uh, it was so well known that you wouldn't even have to say that. The problem with this theory is, is that you have to twist or ignore the synoptic gospels to arrive at that conclusion. Those who say no Seder, it was not a Seder, but this was something else, include the church who want to say that Yeshua was instituting a brand new meal, which over the centuries has been called the Eucharist, communion, and the Lord's table. Now the second group are those like me who look at all the texts and are unwilling to throw any of them out, the synoptics or, the, or John, and so to reconcile them, we believe Yeshua had a Seder a day early, day earlier than the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And most of those who believe that think that there was a difference between the calendars that year, the one that was calculated and the one that was observed. I spoke of those last week as well. Then the third, and it's kind of a smaller group, throw out John and say Yeshua had a Seder on the 14th of Nisan, along with the rest of Israel. In other words, everyone was having a Seder. That, uh, he had the Seder on the same day as the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The problem with this view is, is you have to throw out the account of John. And second, even and more problematic, is you have to say if Yeshua had a Seder on the 14th of Nisan, then you have him being tried, hung, and buried on the Sabbath of unleavened bread. And for me, that does not work. Something, that's something that would have never been done. And it also defies the Gospels that you're using to support that theory because Mark in chapter 15 and verse 42 says, it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for the body of Yeshua. And then John also says in chapter 19, now it was the day of preparation and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. 
Because the Jews didn't want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. So the point I want to make with all of this is this. All of these theories are problematic. And there's really no concrete way to say this is what happened. There's no concrete way to resolve the problems with the information that we have at present. Each of these require another piece of information in order to prove it. Uh, so for me, I think uh, I really go for the day early. But if you think otherwise, hey, I still love you. and <laughs> That's what makes life and study so great. We have a little difference of opinion. So verse 18 says, he replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near and I'm going to keep the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as you had directed them and prepared the Passover. So again, as you can see, the no Seder people have to dismiss quite a few verses to come up with no Seder because the synoptic gospels are quite clear. Yeshua says, I'm going to keep the Passover with my disciples. And as we've seen, and we will see further as we read on, Yeshua was going to die. He knew he was going to die, and he knew when he was going to die. And at this time, he's being quite clear with his disciples about when and he's going to die. So for Yeshua to say, I'm going to eat the Passover with my disciples when he knew he wasn't going to eat the Passover is something that I just can't accept. Now, Mark and Luke add something interesting for those who support a different calendar. They say this, Mark 14 verse 13 says, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? So both Mark and Luke tell us that Yeshua said to his disciples that they would meet a man carrying a jar of water. And the reason this is problematic is that women, not men, carried, usually carried the water. In fact, most often always carried the water. So this may be support for those who feel that Yeshua kept the Passover uh, by an Essene calendar. Because according to Josephus, there was an Essene quarter in Jerusalem, and many of the Essenes were celibate. So that would leave them carrying their own water. The other option is that this man is just a servant in someone's household. Now I want to read Luke's uh, version as well. 22 verse 10 says, He replied, As you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house he enters and say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Yeshua told them, so they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Yeshua and the apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds its fulfillment in the kingdom of God. So if Yeshua is in the Essene quarter, and there was a discrepancy in the calendars that year, it's quite possible that he had the Seder, his Seder, a day before the rest of Israel. But as I said, we'll have to wait for Yeshua to truly find out. But one thing's for sure. 
I don't want to be found arguing about these things that are so trivial when Yeshua does come and I get the opportunity to find him. So anyway, better to focus on the major things that we can see rather than disputable things. Matthew 26, verse 20 says, When evening came, Yeshua was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, Surely not I, Lord. And Yeshua replied, The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to the man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now, I'm going to say, when you read the account, uh, any of the Gospels or all of the Gospels, on the account, uh, their account of the Seder, something strikes you immediately. And that is, hey, their Seder sounds like a whole lot different than the one that we do. Well, you have to understand much of what they did that evening is omitted. But also, I'm going to be the first to admit that the Seder that we do is, much, is, not, is more than likely not the same Seder that they did. The Seder that we do, much of it is a concoction of the rabbis. Not that there's anything wrong with that, nor that it isn't a wonderful and an inspirational Seder. But the truth be told, it's been expanded upon by the rabbis. The things that we know that Yeshua did for sure was first he would have had a Passover lamb, a Pesach lamb. He would have ate it with bitter herbs. He would have had matzah and he would have had wine because those things are required by Torah. And he would have spent the evening telling of the exodus from Egypt because that's required in the Torah as well. Some of the things we don't know was were there four cups of wine, three cups of wine, or two cups of wine? Are the four cups that we do at our Seder good? Well, I think they are. I think so. Our Seders are great, and, and they teach of the Messiah. And the four cups also teach of the Messiah and redemption. Another thing, did they have the afikoman? That's the matzah that's broken, and we hide it away, wrap it in linen and hide it away. Well, probably not. Because as I point out at the Seders, it was we believe it was inserted later, but it's a wonderful and inspirational part of the Seder. Was the egg on the plate? Well, not at Yeshua's Seder. And even the haroset that we have is questionable. So we know that some of the Seder is the same, but some of the portions of our Seder are not the same as theirs. We also know that even though we're not sure of some of the items. Really, there's nothing wrong with, with the additions that the rabbis have put in. They do make an amazing picture of Messiah. There's no reason for us to reinvent the wheel, that's for sure. Um, but only three things are mentioned, and that are, they are the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, and the wine at the meal. Now, I want to talk about the bread and the wine. For the church, this was what became known as the Eucharist communion and where the church went wrong is in the gospel of luke as he records something that the readers of the other gospels did not and before i get to what he records uh, i want to say something about luke's gospel and even the discrepancies we often see between the gospels you know there are those who've popped up recently on the internet and so forth that want to throw out the gospel of luke and mark 
And the reason they give is, hey, they weren't eyewitnesses. They weren't eyewitnesses, so, uh, so we can't count on the accuracy of their Gospels. Well, if you make that your criteria for Scripture, then you'd better throw out the book of Genesis as well, because I can guarantee you that Moses was not an eyewitness to those events. If he was, he was a lot older than the 80 years, or 120 years when he died that the Bible claims. Okay? Second, if we did not have all the Gospels, we would not have preserved for us much of what happened. Because each Gospel writer includes things that others omit. Why is that? Well, I'm going to give you a possibility today. Well, each Gospel writer will write from his perspective and include the things that he feels are relevant to his target audience and things that are important to him. They will, because of their own life experience, see and hear things from a slightly different perspective than the other. And we see this all the time, and it's really clear if you go down to the Torah roundtable discussion that we have in the fellowship hall at 3 o'clock. Because if you listen to my discourse on, say, a Torah portion or one of the prophets, and then you listen to, say, Terry Pitts or Nick, you're going to find that they're not the same at all. Terry, because of his life experience, will focus on things that are important to him. I focus on things that are, I feel are important. That's the way we're made. And, and Nick will focus on things that he thinks are relevant. And they're all things and, and some of the things that these guys focus in on, I tell you what, I read right by. Not important to me. And the same is true if we li listen to someone, we hear things differently. Does that mean that either of our teachings are more valuable or that I was led by the Spirit of God and Nick and Terry were led by their own imaginations? No, it means that because of our life experiences are different, Different things about the passage stick out to us or are, are, are important to us. The Spirit guides each of us along and we arrive at truths of the passage, but some of those truths are slightly different. It's what makes studies like the roundtable so wonderful to participate in. Well, the same is true of the Gospels. You need them all. Each one recounts an event from a slightly different perspective. Each are still inspired by the Spirit of God, but God needed four writers to say everything he wanted to say. So to say that you're going to throw out one because it differs or because he was not an eyewitness will be to your detriment. And let me say something else because I've heard some of these guys on the internet. To speak evil of Luke, Mark, or Shaul and to keep others from the truths that these writers have written will be to your judgment because it's by every word that proceeds from your mouth that you're going to be judged. So look, the whole of our Bible is what we have and it's what we need. Every jot and tittle. And the minute you start throwing something out is the minute you're heading down a path for trouble. Now back to where the church went astray. Luke records Shaul and later states as well, yet Yeshua said this, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. So the fact is, Yeshua takes two elements of this meal, the bread and the wine, 
and uh, he, he says this about it. And he doesn't say much else about the rest of the Seder. Much, much else is mentioned. But by doing this, it opened the doors for those who wanted to separate believers from the Jewish root of the faith, from Torah and from Judaism. And they did this by saying, hey, this is a brand new meal. The Eucharist. And only the bread and the wine are important. Let me say, it really isn't hard for them to see how they arrived at this either. It isn't hard for me to picture them arriving at this. We all place importance on the bread and the wine. At least I do. Think about it. More than likely, after hearing and reading those words of Yeshua, and then if you remember, you'll begin to remember him every time you eat bread and wine. I do. Particularly if you say the blessings. I mean, which of you who say the blessings at, at your meal, who say, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth, doesn't think of Yeshua, who rose from the heart of the earth? Or which of you who say the blessing over the wine, blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine, do not think of Yeshua as the vine and his kehillat as the fruit, which he brought forth. And so uh, what I'm trying to say is there's a natural response to the words of Yeshua to think of him each time you eat bread and drink wine. Where the error and the problem came in is with what we learned in our study of the new believers that we did a few years ago. Because we saw shortly after the first century a conspiracy among the early church fathers to separate everything Jewish from our faith in Messiah. And they did it because they were anti-Semitic. By the time we get to 325 Common Era, this is so prevalent and so vehement that Constantine actually makes it a crime to keep the Passover. Well, at the same time, there was an effort to remove this meal from Passover and teach that Yeshua was actually instituting something brand new, the Eucharist. If you read uh, the writings of the church fathers, it is by the middle to the end of the second century, not even a hundred years after the passing of the last of the disciples, that there was a separation of this meal from Passover completely. And they started to associate it with the agape feasts or love feasts mentioned by Paul, Jude, and Peter. Not to mention that this was done in, they said, well, this is what was done in the home churches, which were really nothing new either because every synagogue that was in existence back then began in somebody's home. That's how they began synagogues. Well, where the real problem comes in is much later, and it's, it's, it's not that long, much later, and it's not much later, but mysticism enters into the meal, and magic enters into the meal. Listen to what Matthew, Matthew said this, take and eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and he gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So the church fathers started to teach that the bread actually and mystically became the actual body of Messiah when it entered into your mouth. And the wine actually became the blood of Yeshua 
when you drank it. And with that, of course, you became one with the Messiah and your sins were forgiven by eating that bread and that wine. It also went from a yearly meal to a weekly meal. Each week, you would eat the Eucharist and your sins would be forgiven. In that regard, I want to say, if you go to a Catholic church today, you can still see this. You know, I was totally amazed the very first time I went into a Catholic church and I went for a funeral. First, the church looked very much like a synagogue. Of course, you had to remove the statues, but once you got the statues out of the place, it looked very much like a synagogue. And, and they even had an ark. And I was totally in front. Here's an ark at the front of the, uh, on the bima. Of course, you know, in the synagogue, if you go into the synagogue, what you find in the ark is the Torah. That's where it's kept. Of course, in their ark, there was no Torah, no word of God. But what was in there? The Eucharist. The bread and the wine. So the teaching here is obvious. Each week in the synagogue, well, people would gather, hear the Torah, the instruction from God, and to help you keep from sin because God gave the Torah to make us aware of sin so that when we heard it, we'd repent and go and sin no more. Make sense? Well, here in the Catholic Church, the Torah is no more. What keeps you free of sin? Not hearing the Torah each week and changing your life, but it's the Eucharist which miraculously changes to Yeshua's actual body and blood, making you one with Messiah who was free from sin. This meal, taken from its Passover root and combined with paganism and mysticism, became an abomination. Now, I know I'm trampling on sacred ground here, so please don't stone me. I'm only the messenger. Granted, when the church reformation began, reformation movements came about, uh, much of this error and this mysticism was removed. But it was never removed to the degree that the meal was ever put back into its Passover setting. It was still a weekly or a monthly meal that had no Jewish roots, but it was something new that Messiah instituted. And what this shows is what happens when you take the words or even things like bread and wine out of the context in which they were given. You can do almost anything with them after that. Understand this though. In the time of Yeshua and the disciples, there was no separation of Passover and the bread and the wine that Yeshua speaks of during the time of the disciples. And there's one more thing that points to this. If you read the Gospel of John, if you read the Gospel of John, he hardly speaks about this meal, and he makes, but he does make clear that it's a Pesach meal, but he never mentions the bread and the wine. Did you ever read John? He never mentions the bread and the wine, or he really doesn't mention much of anything else either. Now think back to what I said earlier. Each gospel writer focuses on what's important to him. And the fact that John fails to mention hardly anything about the meal and doesn't mention the bread and the wine at all tells me that the bread and the wine were never thought of by John as a separate meal. They didn't have importance to him outside of the Seder meal or he would have made a fuss over this new meal. John remembering Yeshua in a Seder meal was a given because that meal is all about Yeshua. 
Okay, let's go back to our text. And, and it says here, it's going to tell us one who dips his hand in the bowl. And more than likely that bowl is the bitter herbs. And it tells us something else. That Judas must have sat very close to Yeshua. So Judas speaks up and he says, Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Yeshua said, You have said so. Now remember we read earlier that all of the disciples said, Surely not I, Lord. One by one. But only one gets an answer. You have said so. You know, it's really hard for me to understand how he could have done this after traveling with Yeshua, knowing the Messiah's love and friendship, and then place such a low value on his life. I spoke about that last week. But then you know something? Not much of the disciples' behavior on these last couple of days that we're looking at of Yeshua's life really make a whole lot of sense to me. Or does it? Or does it? Because when you think about it, we do things in life after coming to know Yeshua that don't make sense and devalue Messiah as well, devalue what he did for us on that day. Think about it. When you think about it, after you come to know Yeshua and the terrible price he paid, each time you knowingly sin after that, you devalue what he's done. Peter denies Yeshua and we think, oh, how terrible. But each time we knowingly sin, we deny that Yeshua came for us so that we might live lives free of sin. So the point is this. If we can get past our first initial response of condemnation of the disciples for them scattering and denying Yeshua and turn Yeshua's words inward, we can learn to be better followers of the Messiah. Because, as I said a few weeks ago, that's what the Bible is all about. It's not for us to judge others, but it's for us to look at our hearts and judge ourselves. Amen? Amen. Now, next in Matthew, we have what's called, as I said, through the centuries, the Lord's Table, Communion, or Eucharist, and we've covered it well enough, even at the risk of my being stoned. So... Um, <laughs> As you may have uh, by now surmised, I believe that Yeshua said, do this in remembrance of me. When he said that, it was in reference, it was at a Seder, and it was at this specific bread and wine at the Seder that he said, do this in remembrance of me. So that when the disciples did a Seder, from this time forward, they not only remembered the exodus from Egypt in that meal, as the Torah commands, but they also, and quite naturally, remembered their exodus from the li their lives of sin by the life and death of Yeshua as Yeshua commanded. So that is all I'm going to say about that. But then on the other side of this meal, we get this. While they were eating, Yeshua took the bread, gave thanks, broke it and gave, gave it to his disciples saying, take it, eat, this is my body. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and offered it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink the fruit of the vine from now until the day I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, certainly we have many elements of the Seder. The cup mentioned here, we have the wine, we have the matzah. And uh, 
and we also have them going and singing a psalm, which if you've been to a Seder, much of the Seder is singing psalms, which were, or we say them, but back in Yeshua's day, they were sung. So this also makes perfect sense that it was a Seder. Now, I want to read uh, from Shaul, because he adds something that the Gospels don't about this meal. The Lord Yeshua, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Whenever you eat this bread or drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. How many have read this and and wondered, where in the world did you all ever get that? Where would he get such a teaching? Yeshua said nothing of the kind. The rest of the word of God says nothing like that if you eat this in an unworthy manner. Where would he get that? Well, the closest thing that you can find in Torah would be maybe Leviticus chapter 22, which says, if any of your descendants is ceremonially unclean and comes near the sacred offerings, that person must be cut off from my presence. You might be able to associate that. But I have another option. Maybe it was when Shaul heard the recounting of this meal and saw that there was one who ate in an unworthy manner and that one died. And that one was cursed. Because if we look at the only information that we have in this regard, we have to look back to the setter of Yeshua and say that there was one who died. He ate this meal and died. And what separated him from the rest was that he had intentional sin in his heart when he ate. He knew that he was going to go out and sin against the Messiah. He saw the miracles of Messiah. He saw the healings, the teachings. He had experienced the love Messiah had shown him. And then he went on that very night and did what was in his heart when he ate that meal. And he betrayed Messiah. Judas was not convinced of Yeshua's Messiahship, his lordship, and he ate the meal, dipped in the same dish as Yeshua, all the while having his eyes fixed on 30 pieces of silver. And I would therefore conclude that when Shaul says a man ought to examine himself, he's saying that one should look inward for the sin that he fully intends to commit again. And if that's the case and you have something like that there, then don't eat. Okay, I want to read this one portion again. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And like I said, that's another element of the Seder. It also could be that that hymn was just grace after meals because that's also sung. Matthew 26 and verse 31 says, Then Yeshua told him, This very night you will fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. So Yeshua not only predicts his death, but also his rising. And not only that, he quotes 
Zechariah 13.7, which says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But I want you to notice something. Yeshua adds something to Zechariah's words. What does he add? He says, I will smite the shepherd. The I will added to the verse would actually refer back to the speaker. And so who's going to smite the shepherd? According to Yeshua, the Lord of hosts. Yeshua is telling us that the Lord is the one who will smite the shepherd. Amen? Can you see that? Notice that Yeshua adds that I will. And this is in perfect keeping with the words of Isaiah. Listen to the words of Isaiah in chapter 10, 53, 10 through 12. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed and he shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he has poured out his soul unto death and he was numbered with the transgressors and he bore the sin of many. He made intercession for the transgressors. Think about it. Yeshua goes willingly and he tells us that the Lord is the one who will smite the shepherd. Think about it. All these years we blame the Jewish people. And it was actually Yeshua and the Father who did all of this. Next, Peter speaks up with these famous last words. Peter replied, Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. I tell you the truth, Yeshua said, On this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. All the other disciples said the same. So I want you to see that we have back to back. First, we have the failure of Judas. And we all know the fate for that failure. And I'm not the judge of Judas. And, and there's no imagining or accounting for the mercy of God. I don't really, but I also don't really think that Judas will be in the world to come. Not to mention that Yeshua told us it would, better, it would have been better for him if he had not been born. I'm not the judge of Judas, but I don't expect to see him in the world to come. But immediately following Judas and his sin, we have the failure of Peter and the rest of the disciples who for fear and unbelief fall away from Yeshua and deny Yeshua. But what do we have for their falling away? We have words of hope for those who ate the meal without sin in their hearts and yet sinned again Yeshua says this, but after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to the Galilee. Yeshua will not forsake them as Judas. You see, there's a difference here. Judas had sin in his heart, and his heart remained unchanged. The other disciples denied Yeshua and scattered out of fear. They didn't have it in their hearts to sin, but 
out of fear succumb to failure. And of that, God can forgive. If you look at the Torah, there's something interesting. You'll find that the sin offering that's in the Torah is for unintentional sin. You find no sin offering in there for intentional sin. The sin in your heart that you contemplate and follow through on, even though the Spirit of God tugs at your heart, is as the sin of Judas, even as Yeshua tugged at his heart that night. And yet, he still went out and did what he did. So be careful of the intentional sin. In closing on a lighter note, I'll close on a lighter note because this has been hard for some, I know. But on a lighter note, Yeshua said, on this very night, the rooster, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. If you look at the window over there, the center window, you see that the Methodists left behind a picture, a stained glass picture of a rooster crowing. Well, the Hebrew word used metaphorically for a rooster is gaver. But its actual meaning is strong man. And a study of the temple will tell you that the temple crier, the one who would call the Levites and the Kohanim and the Ma'amad, the elders of Israel, to their respective places for the morning worship was called a gaver. When Peter denies Yeshua three times, he will be outside the home of Caiaphas, which is on Mount Zion, right across from, and a short distance from the temple. And so if we put these words back into the proper setting and context, it was no rooster, Peter heard, but it was the sound of the temple crier calling the worshipers to worship. Amen?